Testament documents claim that Jesus Christ actually resurrected from the dead. But is this just a matter of faith? Or are there good historical grounds for believing this event? Today, we'll talk to a noted expert on this topic. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zukerin. This is a program that examines cultural and spiritual issues in the light of reason and evidence. And we have resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. There you'll find articles, books, and past shows, including Dr. Zukerin's interviews with experts on a wide variety of topics. So go to evidenceandanswers.org and check it out. Pat, today we'll do part one in our series on the resurrection. Yes, thank you, Kevin. With us today is one of the great defenders of the resurrection of our time, Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Habermas has a PhD from Michigan State University. He's a distinguished research professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. He's an author and co-author of numerous books on the resurrection. He has debated vigorously on this topic with scholars from all over the world from various different worldviews. And one of the foremost scholars he debated is Dr. Anthony Flew, who is regarded as perhaps this generation's foremost atheist philosopher. And we'll be covering the debate and also an interesting conversion experience for Dr. Anthony Flew. But with us right now, Dr. Gary Habermas, Welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be with you. Well, in defending the resurrection, you state that you do not begin by assuming the Bible is inspired or reliable. In fact, you say you begin with the accepted facts and then work up from there. Well, what are these accepted facts, and how do we know that they are accepted facts? Now, let me take a second one first. I, I guess you won't know they're accepted facts until you decide to stop and read most of the guys out there, The let's say the scholars who are the pace setters today. I do take the time to to go through all the well-known works of the resurrection, or almost all of them, and that's quite a wide field. I mean, I've been compiling the bibliography just from 1975 on, and there's over 3,000 sources, so there's a lot. And, and so what I do is I take the data that they concede as sort of a starting point for dialogue. And, and I want to be real careful to point out that uh, a couple things. This isn't because Scripture isn't, you know, a sound basis or something like that, but it's to get everybody on the same page so we can uh, chat, so we can go on to the next level. And also, I don't say that these facts are true because the critical scholars say so, but I think it's the other way around. If people don't admit the inspiration of Scripture or anything like that, even the reliability of Scripture, why would they say these things are true? Well, they think there's a good basis for each one of these facts. So that's what I'm most interested in. Why do the scholars concede these? Now, we're talking about facts sort of like the following. Jesus died by crucifixion. Afterwards, he was buried. Now, you can get into specifics on that, but uh, very few scholars dispute the burial. You have a few here and there. The burial in a cave, that is. Some will say they threw Jesus in the ground or something, but that's still a burial if you just keep it general. Afterwards, the disciples, just normal psychological fact, they experienced despair and disillusionment and, you might say, depression. I mean, it's hard to imagine that, that you could lose your best friend of the world and and not have negative emotions. And then their uh, emotions were changed. Some women reported that the tomb was empty, and the disciples believed they saw the risen Jesus again after his death. And that's 
what caused them to preach and to found the Christian church. So some skeptics came on board. James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, at that time Saul of Tarsus in particular. So all these things are some of the data that there's very little discussion about. And what we want to know is, is the resurrection the best foundation for those facts, or can they be explained otherwise? Now, you've debated numerous scholars uh, from all over the world, and one of them is maybe th- is considered this generation's foremost atheist, Dr. Anthony Flew. Tell us the significance of Dr. Anthony Flew and what he means to the philosophical world. Sure. Well, I'm not the only one who would say this, but, but when I was in grad school in the uh, 70s, it was a long time ago, uh, when I was uh, doing my grad studies, my research would continually come across this fellow's name, Anthony Flew, F-L-E-W. And for some of my friends, skeptical and believers, they just knew that he was the uh, benchmark of, I guess you'd say, philosophers on whom you could try your arguments if you're lucky enough to you know, meet him in a lecture or ask questions or something like that, see some of his dialogues, because he has other dialogues, too. Now, there were others of his generation, uh, Bertrand Russell, A.J. Ayer, J.L. Mackey, but in 1985, when he and I met, and then we debated just a few months later, he was the only one of those, force, the foursome there, all British philosophers, he was the only one who was still living. And beyond just the only one who was living, I also think it's pretty clear that he has written the most monumental philosophical works defending atheism and arguing against miracles. So in a way, you could even say Tony as he told us very early he wanted to be called, uh, you could say Tony is a specialist against miracles. I mean, you know, we usually know specialists for miracles, but he's a specialist against. So he would, he probably has written the most influential tracks against miracles in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think since David Hume, no one really has presented any new arguments until he came along. Is that correct? Tony Flew kind of focused those, and for example, he wrote the article on miracles for the well-known multi-volume Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and he gives about a half dozen arguments against miracles. So he he was the formidable, let's say, modern-day neo-Humean or defender of Hume. I even, I, I mean, you know, I know him really well, and he's a really good friend, and I've even said to him, I'd say, uh, Tony, if I believed in reincarnation, I would believe you were the reincarnation of David Hume. <laughs> and he would just you know, just smile. Yes, I had the privilege of interviewing his biographer, who wrote his most recent biography, Abraham Varghese. And uh, Abraham Varghese described Flew as a titan amongst the atheist philosophers of our generation. So a yeah, very significant uh, philosopher here. Yep, you're right. And I, I think Roy's right, Roy Varghese. He argues that it's just not that he's the last guy standing, like I said, but that his works are clearly, clearly separate him from everybody else in the 20th century and maybe separate him from everybody else in history as far as the, the amount of things he's written against the existence of God, and against miracles, and even against an afterlife. Now, in your debate with Dr. Flew, he accepted those minimalist facts that you presented, but he opened by questioning if there is evidence for an actual burial of Jesus. How do we know Jesus was actually buried as the Gospels record? 
Yeah, what we did was to, to cut through some of the debris, let's say, in a debate. I mean, I could have started and given a presentation of, of historical facts. In many debates are waylaid because guys can't even start on the same page. And then when the debate's over, people just look at each other and say, you know, what just happened? I mean, the guys weren't even talking about the same subjects. So we picked a list of about 12 facts. We had a um, professor of philosophy. The, the, the debate took place at a California university. He was professor of philosophy there. I think he was an agnostic. And uh, we laid these facts on the table, and Tony said something like, yeah, I agree with those. But then what you're talking about is he actually got in there and tried to tweak a few of them. And he'd say, but, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a good reason for these things, but what if we tweaked it this way or tweaked it that way? And actually, he threw me for a little bit of a curve. I don't think he meant to do it. But before the debate, we actually we actually agreed to submit those 12 facts and put them out there because he agreed with them. And then when the debate started, he said, well, I don't know. So there was a, there was a little bit of there at the beginning where there was some jostling back and forth. And then he he was happy to accept the facts pretty much, generally, and move on from there. Now, um, have there been any arguments that seriously challenge the historicity of the resurrection from Dr. Flew or anyone else? Well, I, I often differentiate. This is kind of a difficult concept, but I often differentiate between a priori, let's say, you know, disagreements with the resurrection, and a posteriori, uh, before the facts and after the facts. And most Christians are familiar with the a posteriori, the ones that come after the facts, the ones where the Christian says, oh yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, because here's the evidence, and they usually cite something from the New Testament, because they believe the New Testament to be reliable and or inspired. And the critic listens, and is probably already familiar with the story, and says, yeah, but I think I can explain your facts this way. That's a posteriori. They try to explain the data and take it in a different direction. Tony Flew did very little of that. He did mostly a priori objections. And basically the, the, the point about a priori objections is sort of, I don't care how much data you have before you even explain the data. I just want to tell you why you're not going to pull this off. I just want to tell you why arguments for miracles aren't going to work, whether you have good evidence or not. And they, by and large, can be very tough objections. And, and now, a lot of times as Christians, I'll tell my students, we're taught to say when anybody has an a priori objection, that's illegitimate, because you can't object to something before you hear the data. Well, I think Tony would say, and I think he's right here, I, I think he would say, well, look, there's a difference between an a priori question and an a priori rejection, or let's put it this way, an a priori objection, an a priori rejection. I don't want to get too deep here, but what he's he's not saying you'll never be able to answer me, you'll never be able to come overcome this. That would be a rejection, but he's saying it's simply an objection. If you're going to give me some data, you have to jump over this hill and jump over this one, and and that's the sorts of objections he has to miracles. I don't mean he won't. Like you just said, he'll debate about the data, but he'd rather stay in the philosophical realm and just talk about why miracles don't work. You know, speaking of historical evidence, there are some who say you really can't know history. You know, history is simply someone's interpretation of the data, and you'll look right. at the data and you'll interpret it one way. I'll go to the next guy who has a particular worldview or 
maybe philosophical point of view, and he'll interpret the data the other way. And so you can't really know uh, historical that, facts. One of those, that is one of those a priori, interpretation, uh, a priori objections. It's just to say, well, I know you're going to give me evidence, but I don't think there's such thing as historical evidence. Now, Tony would never come close to saying that because he trusts history very much. He thought history, he, he's a student of history. As a matter of fact, we've had three debates on the resurrection, a couple other dialogues. When he came to Virginia for the first one, he actually, we found out he was a, he's a, a fan, a student of the American Civil War, which is really interesting because one of our faculty members took him around to a number of battlefields and, uh, in Virginia. And now, to to have that kind of a view, you know, I'm interested in the Civil War battles, you have to have a certain appreciation for history. And uh, he does. He he certainly does. He fought in World War II. He was part of the group that decoded some of the Japanese secret messages and that kind of stuff. When you talk about things like that, or you talk about Churchill or Bismarck or 19th century or 13th century, uh, it, it's pretty hard to turn around and, the, and then to say, I don't trust history. So he that wouldn't come from him at all. But a person could say that. And you have to talk about why it's self-defeating to uh, uh, reject history and, you know, you accept your own history and, and the fact that we have good evidence for history. Now, in your debate, uh, you stated that the earliest written testimony to the resurrection is possibly 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's account. And many date Paul's reception of this creed to about 35 A.D., just exactly. a few years after the death of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we get this date? That right there, that is probably the single most exciting question in the New Testament regarding Jesus. It's a pretty new development. Scholars have been talking about it. I mean, 100 years ago, you'd find a little bit about it, but it's really just been kind of coming out in the last few decades. And evangelicals were the last ones on the block to learn about it. I, I think why that is, is is very, very strange. Why evangelicals weren't, <laughs> you know, we're usually open to evidence wherever we find it, but our presuppositions are sort of like, why do I need separate arguments from the Bible? I've got the Bible. And so when you start talking about text in the Bible, that leaves some people, some believers wondering. But But the way the argument works is this. There are a number of texts in the New Testament, probably dozens of texts, which are earlier than the books in which they are written. The best way I can explain this is to say these texts are the answers to the question of what did earliest preaching consist before there was a New Testament. I, I could say it another way. When the earliest disciples started preaching, they had to preach something between the death of Jesus and when the first New Testament books came out. There's a gap there of approximately 20 years. Now, some you know Christians would say, well, read the book of Acts. And, I mean, of course we can do that. But the book of Acts, the books that fall within the time of Acts, that fall within that first 20 years, it certainly is far from exhaustive. Nobody would claim that Acts is exhaustive. So we'd like to get a snapshot, a picture to look in on what that earliest preaching looked like from, let's say, 30 to 50 A.D. Well, I think the best answer to that question are these early... They go by different names, creeds, confessions, uh, and so on, testimonies. And it, it basically was the earliest preaching about Jesus. It almost always concerns the nature of the gospel. Theologians would say that it has a lot to do with Christology. 
and uh, it's the answer to the question, how did the early apostles preach? Well, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15.3, that he's doing just that. He says, I delivered unto you what I received as of primary importance. So he's telling his readers, when I came to Corinth, that's verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, when I came to Corinth, I preached to you the message of the gospel. And he says, if you believed it, you're a Christian, and if you didn't believe it, you're not. I mean, it's that simple. What did you do with the things I preached? And when you let the New Testament define the gospel, what is this message, there's always three indispensable points that are part of this early message. The deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So Paul says in verse 3, after saying, I brought this to you, and if you believe you're a Christian, he says in verse 3, this is the material I received from somebody else, and I gave it to you. So you have to ask the question, from whom and when did he re- receive this material? Now, I can go into detail with you if you want, but most scholars believe that Paul probably received this material when he visited Jerusalem for the first time, approximately five years after the cross. So if you think the cross is 30 A.D., it'd be 35. If you think the cross is 33, which are the two most common dates, uh, you'd say it was 38 A.D. So it's it's not so much the date that's important, it's the plus-minus. And uh, the most common view is that Paul received this material about five years after the cross. And it, it really is, it corresponds to what he describes in Galatians chapter 1. That's the meeting he had with Peter and James. And that's really important because that uh, states that the preaching of the gospel was well, you know, within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses, and therefore it's too early for any kind of legend to develop, as in we see in the other world religions. Isn't that true? Well, we don't have any other founders of major world religions. I mean, for example, just pick something that we've been talking about here, miracles. We don't have a founder of a major world religion who has miracles reported of him or her within 50 years. I mean, somebody will say to me, I... A guy said this to me once in a debate. He said, uh, I don't want to accept the miracles of Jesus because I'm not very open to the miracles of Buddha. And if I accept Jesus' miracles, I've got to accept Buddha's miracles. And I said, well, you know, I, ex- I understand the principle that if you accept miracles here, you've got to find them, you got to accept them when you find the same things elsewhere. But why would you say Buddha's miracles aren't a par with Jesus? And, and, and you know, Pat, today, that's not... You have to be careful when you say things like that. Political correctness just... You know, kind of rules everything, and and if I say, well, I accept Jesus' miracles, but I don't accept Buddha's, they'd say, oh, that makes sense. You're pre- you're a prejudiced Christian. I say, well, what if it's the evidence I'm talking about? Because Buddha's miracles are not reported, depending on the text. His miracles are not reported for 300 to 500 years. I have a Buddhist scripture text that collects Buddhist scriptures, and the editor at the beginning of the book says. We don't have the evidence for these things that Christians have for their teachings. That's an amazing comment. So, you know, the principle is we accept material when it comes on good scholarly grounds. And if we can trace Paul's message back to the 30s A.D., that doesn't prove it just by the fact that it's early. But if it's, if it's traceable to five years after the cross and to the people who, not only to the people who were there, but to the four biggest names. In Galatians chapter 1, you have three of them, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul. 
and then a chapter later on Paul's next visit to Jerusalem, you've got the same three, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, and now John is there. They're the, most, they're the four most influential Christian eyewitnesses. Now, I, I would answer your question by saying sometimes in early sources we do have mythology that grows up pretty quickly in certain contexts. But for the most part, it's going to take a while to, to take over the text. But it, always with history, you want to get back to the earliest eyewitnesses, and we can, we can do it so well in this passage that it's this argument, 1 Corinthians 15.3, that is probably more responsible for a generation of respect for the resurrection. And you also state that two key witnesses or two powerful witnesses are the Apostle Paul and Jesus' half-brother, James. What makes them such powerful witnesses? For several reasons. Not only were they there at the beginning, so they're very, very early. Secondly, they were eyewitness. Skeptics, skeptical scholars would allow, I mean, without hardly any exception, Tony Flew would not have a problem allowing that James, the brother of Jesus, I think you called him half-brother or step-brother, uh, I don't know how that works biologically, but Jesus' brother and Paul were skeptics. Saul of Tarsus at that time, and they were skeptics. Tony Flew would allow that. And then they believed they saw the risen Jesus. So they're early, they're eyewitness, and they were unbelievers. And then fourthly, their lives were totally changed because of this. Now somebody could jump in here and say, well, come on, the world's full of people today whose lives are transformed by a message I don't agree with, and they're trying to blow up the world with this, you know, because of this message. Well, it is true that people die for a lot of things that are contradictory to each other. But the key with the disciples is this. Today, people die, including Christians. Today, people die for messages of 2,000 years ago that they thought were true, that we believe today were true back then and hence true today. But the disciples were the ones who were in the position to know if the original teaching was true or not. And they're the ones that died for their faith. So critics, I mean, virtually, virtually never, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have to look hard to find, a cert, to find a single accredited scholar. I mean, someone who's trained in the field, terminal degree, peer-reviewed publications, knows what they're talking about, and says that the disciples were lying or something like that. They concede to a person that the disciples were teaching what they thought was true. The catch to that is they thought it was true, they were willing to die for it, but they are the only ones who are in a position to know if it's true or not. So when we get this, the early proclamation with the people who were there, with people who were skeptics and unbelievers, with people who were changed later, now you've got the core of the Christian apologetic for the resurrection. Dr. Hoppermasa, we're going to have to end with this uh, final question here. But one of Anthony Flew's objection was that the resurrection is an extraordinary event, and extraordinary events require extraordinary amount of evidence. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to that? Well, <laughs> it depends on which side of the bed I get up on. Uh, it really does. I can see both sides of the uh, of the issue in this one. I've got a good uh, philosopher buddy, Steve Parrish, up in Detroit. He's a professor up there, and uh, he does he wouldn't grant that point. He's a Christian philosopher who thinks that non-miracles should not be given any more privileged position than miracles unless you already know that naturalism is false. And I think he makes a really, really good point. In other words, 
miracles are only less likely if we know certain things about naturalism. But if all views are starting on a common ground, like, uh, you know, your position is possible, my position is possible, then miracles should be there with other claims. I, I think Steve's right overall, but sometimes I, I, like most people, think, if you're going to tell me something incredible, just don't tell me and walk away. Uh, give me some evidence. And so either way, I would, I would say both things to Tony Flew. I would say, on the one hand, why can you say it should be ruled out unless you already know there's no God? And, of course, the other half of the picture is that he's become a theist. He, he believes in God now. So, so th- things change. The second thing I'd say is, if you think extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence, I think there's extraordinary evidence. So let's talk about that. That's fantastic. We're speaking with our guest, Dr. Gary Habermas, professor at Liberty University, one of the foremost defenders of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a new book here that's come out, Did the Resurrection Happen?, which covers the debate between him and Dr. Anthony Flew. A great book we encourage you to get, along with his other books, such as The Historical Jesus, some of the best works on the defense of the historical reliability of the Gospels and of Jesus Christ. So, Dr. Gary Habermas, thanks for being with us, and we look forward to being with you next week. Thanks very much. Thanks for your questions. Well, thank you for being with us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zugerin. We hope you got some good information, and we have more at evidenceandanswers.org. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism is available free and for purchase. And by the way, when you purchase our resources at evidenceandanswers.org, you keep this show on this station and help us to expand. And you may also want to partner with us. Just click the Donate button on our front page. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.